welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. All right, First Timothy chapter 2. After the pa- over the past few weeks, Paul has repeatedly turned our eyes and our hearts to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The good news that God has been revealed through Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners. We are to guard this gospel against all threats. And we are to proclaim this gospel to all people. Last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul argued that this gospel was indeed for all people, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, kings and servants, and that our prayers must reflect the radical nature of God's call to all people, even our enemies, even those who, humanly speaking, do not personally merit even a single moment of our time. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. In verses 8 through 15, Paul will transition from prayer specifically into more general instructions about how men and women are to conduct themselves, especially in the church of God, which aligns with his purpose of writing to instruct the church in Ephesus and how they ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In order to properly examine this section, we will only look at verses 8 through 10 this morning, and then next time we will complete the thought with verses 11 through 15. Before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have the privilege to gather here. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing your praises together, that we can bow our heads together in unity and speak to you and you hear us. Thank you that you hear our songs, our voices lifted to you and you hear our prayers. And now, Father, I pray that you will speak to each and every one of us through your words. Would you please bless the proclaiming of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by reading verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 together. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Why do so many passages of Scripture split instructions this way? There is a clear pattern throughout the Bible of giving instructions and expectations on one hand to men, and on the other hand to women. Most often the spirit of the admonition is the same for both um, for both men and women. They are both to honor God and glorify God in everything they do. 
but then different words are used to describe how they are to go about glorifying God, especially when discussing the family or the church. For example, in the Old Testament, there are many ceremonial and sacrificial laws that no longer apply to us, but the principle is still there. God outlined certain procedures that were different for men and women. Colossians 3, 18-19 is another example. Paul is speaking generally to the church, and then he distinguishes between men and women. He says, wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. And one more example, in Titus 2, verses 2-3, through 3, Paul writes to the church in Crete. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Why make gender-specific applications? It all goes back to God's intent and plan in the very beginning, to make men and women different. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read the account of God creating a good world without sin or brokenness. But in chapter 2, verse 18, we read these words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is meant to jump out at us. God had just made all things. He then stands back admiring his handiwork, judging what he had made as being good. But when God looks at the man, going about his work alone, he says, this is not good. And I personally am so thankful for that assessment. God goes on to say, I will make him a helper fit for him. In the very beginning, before the fall, before sin, before laziness, bitterness, or pride, God gave Adam a role and responsibility, and then he created Eve specifically to be Adam's helper, fit for him or corresponding to him. God did not make Eve exactly like Adam. God made her similar but different. If you look at your hands, if you you hold up your hands and you look at them, they're typically very similar. A palm, five fingers, fingernails, bones, and joints. But when you examine them more closely, you start to realize they are quite different. One small thing you may notice is that the pattern of the lines in your palms don't match. The lines are similar, but different. Another thing is that one hand is usually stronger than the other, though this is due to use rather than design. But something that none of us can escape is that our hands are opposites of one another. The design of our, of our palm and the arrangement of our fingers mirror one another. They do not match. My left hand was designed to correspond to my right hand. They fit together. My right hand is stronger. It definitely takes the lead in most things, but I am so thankful for the help my left hand provides. I can catch and throw a rugby ball with just my right hand. But the end result is often clumsy and inconsistent. It's quite ugly, actually. 
I can write with just my right hand, but without my left hand, to steady the paper and keep it in place, the end result is far less visually appealing. You see, my left hand provides the help my right hand needs. It's as if my left and my right hand were made for each other, designed to be different, yet to fit together, fit for one another. In a similar way, God designed men and women different. But He did this so that they would be corresponding or suitable for one another. In the beginning, God gave Adam a task, and then He created Eve to help Adam accomplish that God-given task. However, after the fall of mankind into sin, this perfect leader-helper relationship was marred and distorted by sin. And that is why the scriptures so often admonish believers to return to living the way they were created to live. These instructions are not given to hurt us. Instead, they are given so that we can return to what God declares is good. There are many ways this foundational concept of men and women being different plays itself out. But the point is, is that we all should recognize and rejoice in this biblical truth that men and women were created equal, yet different, both in the image of God, yet with different roles. With this in mind, let's look at verse 8 together, where men are called to pray with humility. Paul says in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul has just finished describing godly prayer for all people in verses 1 through 7, and now he writes verse 8 with those words in mind. We should recognize Paul's first words, I desire, as him expressing the will of the Lord that had been revealed to him. The words that follow are not simply an old man's ramblings that we can ignore. When the writer of Scripture, when a writer of Scripture gives clear instructions which prescribe certain behavior, we must accept those instructions as from the Lord. Yes, the Lord has chosen to use human writers to transmit His words, but that does not mean we can pick and choose which words we want to accept. And when Paul says, I desire, in this context, we should recognize these words as instructions given to him by the Lord. Paul's God-given desire and instruction is that in every place the men should pray. It is possible that the intent of this instruction is that in every place, every single place, whether in your home, your car, the shopping mall, the church, or in the field, men should pray. This would be a good thing, and it is possible, it is a possible way of interpreting this passage, but in context, I think Paul has something more specific in mind. I believe that when Paul says, in every place, he specifically has in mind every place in Ephesus where the church formally gathers. The admonitions that follow do have application for everyday life, but I believe it is best that we understand these instructions as primarily addressing how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church, which isn't a building or a specific room. The church is the people of God who gather together 
at certain times and places, which is, after all, Paul's focus throughout this whole letter. Paul says he desires then that in every place the men should pray. Paul specifically singles out the men to pray when the people of God gather. I suggest two reasons why Paul singles out the men in the church this way. He is first combating men's fallen nature, and secondly, seeking to restore God-given roles. As a man, I can personally attest to the fact that in my fallen nature, I desire to be served. In my flesh, I desire to be comfortable, to have others do the things that I find beneath me difficult, uncomfortable, or painful. And the more loathsome the task, the greater my desire to be served. This is why the disciples of Jesus all walked into a house with dirty, smelly feet and immediately looked around to see who would be the one to do the loathsome task of washing dirty feet. But instead of humbling themselves, they all sat down to a meal and before long began arguing about who would be the greatest among them, the most powerful the most able to ensure their own comfort. This is the natural condition of every man's heart. It may play itself out in different ways depending on your specific upbringing and personality, but it is there. It is there. The flesh in us desires to avoid painful responsibility and accept the dutiful service of others. So how does this impact prayer in the household of God? Men do not have a natural disposition to pray. In fact, men have been statistically more hesitant and reluctant than women to participate in any form of spiritual worship or devotion. There is a plague in our society and around the world of spiritual laziness among men. The woman is seen as the one who is supposed to get up early on a Sunday morning, wake up, feed and clothe the kids, and then have everyone sitting in the car ready to go to church. If, and only if, the wife is able to accomplish all this in time for church, will the husband roll out of bed and drive the family to church. Then at church, the husband walks in and finds a private corner in the auditorium to sit and listen participating only as much as is necessary, making mental notes of what he liked and didn't like about the service he experienced. But the scriptures over and over again declare that this is not true godly masculinity. This is not a man after God's own heart. Instead of using our strength, role, or position to pursue our own comforts, the godly man uses those God-given gifts to lead in service. So instead of always sitting back and letting others spiritually serve you, the godly man is called to lead spiritually wherever God has placed him. If you are single, 
spiritually lead your friends in loving God and serving Him. Use your additional time and energy to be a blessing to the family of God and reach your lost friends and co-workers. If you are a married man, spiritually lead your wife and children if you are blessed with them. Be the one to get up early on a Sunday. Set your family up for success. Explain to your children why you emphasize the gathering of the saints and the worship of your God. Set the example for your wife and children in devotion, service, and worship. What a beautiful thing for a child to see their father singing with the congregation, immersed in worship, deeply impacted by the Word of God, and filled with joy at the thought of our God who saves. Men, do not minimize, do not neglect the impact that you, by the design of God, can have on your wife and your children. God has designated you to be the primary spiritual leader in the life of your family. If God, if godly men are designated to spiritually lead their families, then it makes sense that men should be ready and willing to get up out of their seats, stand before the congregation, and lead the whole church in prayer. Even though it may be uncomfortable, even though standing in front of others may be the last thing in the world you ever wanted to do, godly men are called to lead in their spiritual devotion and worship, even though our flesh cries out to stay in bed and let others lead in serving. Men are not called to pray in just any attitude. Instead, in verse 8, we see that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. To lift holy hands express the cultural norm. To pray with empty hands extended with palms facing upward. But this outward expression depicted the heart condition of the one who prayed. Their hands were to be holy. This describes the life and conduct of the one praying. They are set apart from the sins of the world and designated for, this, for service to God. These hands do not shed blood, steal, or abuse others. Instead, these hands work hard, give to the poor, and defend the widow and the orphan. These hands are extended with palms facing up. This depicts how we come to look to God in prayer as beggars. Yes, He has pronounced us His sons, but we must always acknowledge that every good thing comes from Him as a gift that we are totally undeserving of. These extended hands are empty. These hands are not clutching tightly to the stuff around us. How can we receive anything from the Lord if our hearts, our lives, our hands are filled with the fading treasures of this world? 
Paul goes on to say that men are called to pray without anger and quarrel or quarreling. In every church, whether it was back in Ephesus and Corinth or here in George, South Africa, there is every opportunity for us to sin against one another. And when we wound one another, whether intentional or not, our most natural response is anger. Some retreat inwardly in their anger, feeding bitterness and resentment. But others explode outwardly in their anger, feeding the pleasure of wounding the offender in return. But when we gather as a church, specifically to pray, Paul says men are to forsake their anger and deny ourselves the pleasure of secret bitterness or explosive revenge. Instead, repent of your anger and with humility seek the rest, seek restoration and unity with your brothers before you ever come to the Lord in worship. Jesus used the following example when teaching the crowds about anger. In Matthew 5, 23, we, we read Jesus' words. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Be reconciled to your brother before you come to the Lord in worship. This means that our church gathering should be a time where restoration happens frequently. Find your brother before the worship service. If convicted during the service, then find your brother as soon as possible. If you come to the time of communion, the Lord's Supper, and you know you are not right with your brother in Christ, then put down the cup and the bread and find your brother, be restored to your brother, and then come back and worship the Lord as one who is at peace and who is at peace and in unity with all there gathered. Men are also to pray without quarreling. In some translations it may say doubting, but to be clear, the dissent, argument, or or heated back and forth debate is between people in the church. Paul's not focusing on doubting God's ability to answer prayer. Men are called to reject the temptation to bicker among themselves about things which are not of first importance or are simply not revealed in Scripture. This does not mean that Christians should not discuss difficult topics with one another, but this does mean that we are not permitted to sow disunity and separate over things that are not clear violations of God's Word. Amen. The emphasis here is clearly on relationships within the church. But we must not forget that our wives are included in the list of those whom we must have godly relationships with. One of the hardest things about being a godly husband and a godly father is that it is your responsibility to spiritually lead your family in repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Not just before God, but before one another. When a husband 
Our Father knows that there is some form of disunity, hurt, or bitterness growing in their home, like a cancer spreading and sickening your family. Then it is your God-given duty to seek it out. And with all love, patience, and humility, strive for restoration. We are never, never permitted to sit back and bitterly say about our wives, she must come to me. Does this dissolve wives and children of any responsibility to seek restoration? No. But men are called to be the primary spiritual leader in their families. Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All men who fear God must take heed to this admonition. Cleanse your hands before the Lord. Humble yourself among your brothers and sisters in the congregation. Live in an understanding way with your wife so that your prayers will not be hindered. In verses 9-10, through Paul switches focus and calls women to adorn themselves with godliness. In verse 9, Paul begins by calling women to adorn or beautify themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. This was in contrast to what was going on with some women in the Ephesian church. He goes on to say they are not to adorn themselves with braided hair in gold or pearls or costly attire. Apparently, the household of God in Ephesus had become somewhat of a fashion show. When the people of God gathered, at least some women would pull out their very best, clothing themselves in the most physically attractive and rich way they could afford. The purpose of the gathering was becoming unclear. Were they gathering in order to show off their physical beauty and wealth? Or were they gathering to worship God and declare His beauty and worth? The extravagant nature of the hairdos with gold and pearls weaved into their hair and the riches put on display with their clothing was drawing attention away from God and the purpose of their gathering. You can quite easily imagine that the men were distracted, but what about the other women? The ones who were poor simply dressed, unable to afford Sunday clothes that were different than the clothes they wore every other day of the week. This extravagant display of wealth was distracting from the purpose of the gathering and driving a wedge between the rich and the poor. Please understand, Paul is not making a rule that women are never allowed to put on makeup, braid their hair, wear gold or pearls, he is not saying these things are evil. Amen. What Paul is saying is that each woman who loves God must refuse to wear or do anything in the household of God that distracts from the purpose 
of why we are gathering. She does this because she loves God. She wants God to be glorified, God to be worshipped. She wants His beauty and His worth to be put on public display for all to see. The thought of intentionally distracting her brothers in the congregation or discouraging her sisters is alien to the woman who longs to see the name of Jesus lifted high above every other name. There is also another message to hear from this passage of Scripture. The beauty that comes from godliness is far more to be desired than the beauty of fancy clothing or wealth. Paul lists four things that women are to adorn, or here this word also could mean, it's a play on words, women are to beautify themselves with, first, respectable apparel, clothing that is appropriate for the occasion. Second, modesty. The heart attitude which desires to avoid anything inappropriate or that would bring shame upon herself, her family, or God. Third, self-control. Acting upon modesty and restraining any desire that is out of place. The final way that a woman can adorn herself is listed in verse 10. Women are to adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Good works is a general description of being the hands and feet of Christ in your home, your church, and community. Paul is calling women to become truly beautiful by adorning themselves with these characteristics of godliness. In 1 Peter 3, women are encouraged with these words, Peter says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. When Peter describes a godly woman as having a gentle and quiet spirit, He is saying a godly woman is the exact opposite of turmoil and strife. The godly woman is like the gentle and quiet fire that warms your home and draws people to it. She brings warmth and joy to all who know her. In contrast to the raging wildfire that burns and devours everything that gets in its path. Sisters, God says that these traits are imperishable beauty for you. They are very precious, rare, and valuable in God's sight. Women who rejoice in the way God designed them and who adorn themselves with these character traits will have true beauty and their beauty will be evident to all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is not all general platitudes, but that you dive deep into our lives 
into real day-to-day difficulties, to struggles within the church. Thank you for those who have faithfully passed on your word. Lord, I pray that we as a church would seek to lift high your name, whether it be here at this gathering when we're singing, praying, reading your word, whatever it might be, in our attitudes, in what we wear, and what we say, that all of it, Father, would be targeted at lifting high the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father. May this be true of us when we're gathered here. It may be true of us when we go out of here into this world, into our homes and our workplaces. Whether we are men or women, may the beauty of Jesus Christ be seen in us through what we do and what we say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.